millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Kia ora, hello and welcome to the podcast hour. I'm Richard Scott and each week I listen to loads of the top audio storytelling from all around the world and share the best of it with you. If you've got any good listening recommendations, do let me know. Pods at radionz.co.nz is the email address. On Twitter, we're at RNZ Podcast Hour, and I'll feature as many of your recommendations as I can on future shows. Coming up today, collecting coincidences. A lady bought an old picture frame and took it apart, and there's some newspaper in the back of it, and opened up the newspaper, and there was a story about her when she was a child. Learning more about Te Ao Māori, the Māori world with the podcast Tāringa. It can mean like, like, oh, hell. Jeez. Oh, jeez, by jingos. By jingos. Does oh, anyone wow. even use by jingos these days? Oh, I, I like to yeah. say it. Bring yeah. it up, yeah. Yeah, by jingos. By jingos. Jeez, or. Damn. Oh, hell. You know, so. <laughs> Katahira. Then after a short detour to Vietnam, Nocturne tells stories about the night, including Candle Hour a ritual that one woman swears by to help her relax before bed. Step one is you turn off your devices and turn off the lights or turn them down. Step two is you light a candle or more than one candle and then you do whatever you feel like. And finally, the Ghibliotech reviews the complete works of the Japanese animation studio, Studio Ghibli. And this week, the show reviews many people's favourite Ghibli. My neighbour Totoro. That's all coming up on the podcast hour. <laughs> What's the best coincidence you've ever experienced? Well, I've got a good one. On a family holiday to Cyprus, the airline lost our bags en route. We went to a local travel agent to sort it all out, and there, lying on the travel agent's desk, was a letter addressed to our old home in Scotland. It turns out the travel agent's parents had bought our old home from us. What are the chances of that? And if you can beat that coincidence, I want to hear about it. Email me at pods at radionz.co.nz. Unfortunately, it's unlikely that any of our stories are going to impress David Spiegelhalter all that much. He's a professor of the public understanding of risk at the University of Cambridge. He collects stories about coincidences. And he was interviewed as part of a BBC documentary called What Are the Odds? by Rajesh Merchandani about some of the favourite coincidences in his collection. We had one where a lady bought an old picture frame and took it apart and there's some newspaper in the back of it and opened up the newspaper and there was a story about her when she was a child. I I think, you know, that's a really delightful one. Well, I I just think that's kind of spooky. Oh, yeah. Well, ah, now you've mentioned the word, the kind of spooky. We do get a lot of people saying 
is kind of spooky. And in fact, this is one of the, the things that people think coincidences are fun, they're the kind of upside of chance. Well, you know, some people, they happen to so much, they get very concerned about it. It's, it stops being fun. They actually feel that this is something strange going on in their lives. So it's so for some people, it's a kind of sense of, there's a kind of element of charmingness about it. To other people, they think there's, you know, this is the invisible hand of you know, some force at work. The fact that they do see there's some, you know, reason for these. There's something going on. There's some hidden cause. And of course, we know that Jung invented the idea of synchronicity and uh, camera and the idea of seriality. You know, there have been various theories in the past about why these things tend to happen. I, I, I just don't believe them at all. I, you know, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm very skeptical of any of that. I just believe in the world being a deeply complex, unpredictable place in which things happen. But as humans, we're very reluctant to admit that things just happen because of chance. We think there's a reason. We met our partner just by this chance event, our, our, you know, our soulmate. Well, hang on, <laughs> you'd have met somebody else. <laughs> <laughs> and then you'd have called How many them your soulmates. soulmate. Do people have? Well, exactly. There's many people. Isn't it coincidental that people's soulmate turn out to be of the same social group, the same religion? The same, isn't that amazing that that happens? So you know, we find patterns and meaning our lives. We are pattern as humans. We're we're absolutely geared up to be pattern searchers, and that that's very good. From an evolutionary point of view, it's extremely good. We can spot patterns in very complex things. Why is However, that good? We, we're, we're extremely sensitive to possible threats. And even though they might not be threats, we tend to overinterpret. We hear a rustling in the bushes and we run away because it might be a tiger. You know, that, uh, and that's the sort of crude evolutionary view that we're, it's quite good to be programmed to overinterpret signals that are, in fact, just chance. Why is it that some people see more coincidences and attribute meaning to such events? Here's Peter Brugger, the head of the neuropsychology unit at University Hospital Zurich. We see more patterns and meaningful coincidences against a noisy background uh, when we have more dopamine in our brain. Uh, why would some people have in regular life higher dopamine levels in um, certain danger situations where you have, where you're very excited and emotional? Also, to, to name a positive example, maybe falling off makes your dopamine levels rise a bit, but um, people in love should see more meaningful patterns in, in these kind of experiments we, we did. It's very reassuring to find a narrative to be able to fit our lives into, into a consistent narrative. I think it's almost completely illusory and that you know much of our lives is governed by pure, unpredictable chance, providence, whatever you want to call it, chaos, whatever. There's a romance to coincidences, which is a good thing, isn't it? Oh, yeah, people love it. And endless stories. We know that Dickens used coincidence vastly in his novels to, to, you know, to round them off. It's, it's, it's good fiction. But, you know, these things really don't happen. Wow. Um, has anybody called you a killjoy ever? <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, yeah. People loathe this. They really they think I'm miserable old git. I really do. But no, I, I still love it because there's still enormous structure in pure chance. And that's where the mathematics comes in. Because I know if there's two football teams playing and a referee, that's 23 people on the pitch, 50% chance two of them will have the same birthday. So in 50% of all football matches, there's two people on the pitch with the same birthday. Can that be right? 
My head hurts just thinking about it. Professor David Spiegelhalter, who appeared on What Are the Odds from the BBC, presented by Rajesh Merchandani and produced by Kate Bissell. And there are many more delightful stories about coincidences in that, including some great ones that happen right there while they're actually making the story. You'll find a link on our website now. It's at rnz.co.nz forward slash podcast hour. Baden Campbell tweeted us at RNZ Podcast Hour to say, you should check out the Taringa podcast out of Te Wananga o Aotearoa. It's about all things Te Ao Māori, has brilliant hosts, and I reckon is one of the best New Zealand podcasts going. After starting up a little over a year ago, Taringa's made about 60 episodes so far. It builds up Māori language skills and also tells you a lot about Māori cultural practice and customs. It's funny accessible, free, and it's currently getting listened to by more than 21,000 people every month. And they come from all over the world, including from Guernsey and Bulgaria, believe it or not. Well, thanks for the tweet, Bay, and I'll be speaking to one of the team from Taringa in just a moment. That's after I play you a taster from episode 47 called Once Upon a Timer, Te Ika a Maui. it's once upon a timer time again, ite neira. But before we get into once upon a timer, kiwa, 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 kiwa. And our kiwaha this week is katahira, katahira, katahira. Our instruments are playing up at the moment, so it's a bit katahira. katahira. We're going, yeah, katahira. Katahira playing up. Katahira can't hear. Can't hear. Katahira want to go home because it's Friday. <laughs> katahira is getting that to that time. <laughs> yeah, so Katahira. I wonder if we even need to translate it if we got the idea of how we were using it. So. Yeah. I think by now, if you're an avid listener of our podcast, you'd know that it's the way that you throw things. Um, yeah. Yeah, that, that's how you'll get the gist of this. Yeah. Mm. So if something that you disagree to or... Uh, you you get home and the kids have messed the house. Katahira. Yeah, we go out, you know, go out for for tea with poor Haiti, and then you know you order, and then he's like, oh, bro, I haven't got any money, and you go katahira, katahira, rita tonu koe Yeah, next I can mean it can mean like like oh hell, jeez, jeez, buy jingos, buy jingos. Does oh, anyone wow. even use by jingos these days? Oh, I'd, I like to yeah. say it. Yeah. Bring it up, yeah. Yeah, by jingos. By jingos. Jeez, or... Dang. Ah, hell. You know, so... <laughs> Katahira. 
Veja o X. Ah, Catahira. E, ó, Lair again. Catahira. Ah, tá o G. Catahira. Yeah. So, um, yeah, and you got to have that emphasis in there. Mm. Yep. Yeah. Catahira. So, there you go. Queen Atata Taikiwa. Uh, coming up, I think our our hero was going fishing again. Oh, our, our tuahangata. Aye, our tuahangata. Kupu ho. Aye, pai tēnā. So tuahangata is hero, uh, kupu a nomote hero, and tuawahine is uh, heroine. Heroine, kill Or heroine, so female hero. hero. Yeah. Yeah, tua, not heroine, like, not. you know, not that. Katairā. Yeah, katairā. Hoi anō e tehiwi. Whakarongo mai, once upon a time. I overheard my brothers planning a fishing trip. Once upon a time in the ancient world of the immortal, on a land beyond the horizon, we find our audacious hero. Maui Tiki Tiki Ataranga, planning yet another adventure that would once again forever change the course of mankind. One night, as Maui made his way past his brother's whare, he could hear the instinctive murmurs of a hui. Not being one to miss out on the goss, Maui crept closer to a window to catch wind of the kore. In council were his four brothers, Maui Taha, Maui Roto, Maui Waho, and Maui Pai. Oh. Tonight we prep our game, Maui Roto. E pehea te maunu. How was the bait? E pai marika, Maui Taha. He maha aku. Good. I have plenty. Hey, Maui Waho, when shall we launch? I think it'd be wise we leave before the pink glow of Tominui Te Ra parts the horizon from the ocean. Pihea tau, Maui Pai. Hana, ke konaka toahau. Absolutely. My thoughts exactly. Before Maui wakes up too, we need fishermen, not passengers. We are it. I overheard them talking about this the other night. <laughs> we'll see about that, boy. Episode 47 of Taranga called Once Upon a Timer, Te Ika a Maui from Te Wananga o Aotearoa. And one of the voices you heard there is Te Puahedi Snowden, who co-hosts the show with Prauni Gloin. I asked him how the podcast started up. It was the collision of pathways at the right time. So Morgan Samuel, I call him Soundwave, he's our sound man here at Te Puro at Te Wananga Aotearoa. He has quite the experience in um, podcasting, I believe he did. What was the podcast you did, um, Morgs? Uh, the Rugby Roundtable with the TAB. Yeah, he did the, the Rugby Roundtable with the TAB down in Wellington, but he's also an avid podcast listener. So um, Morgan probably had the most experience in terms of um, podcasts. I listen to a few podcasts, but I think it's about convenience eh, with podcasting, when you can listen to it if you're on a long drive. So that was Morgan, and he came in, and he had a lot of his own questions, and he goes, let's podcast. Let's talk about the stuff that I can't get in the classroom. Let's talk about the stuff that I can't, that I have, you know, I don't have to do in an assessment or an assignment where it's real loose and we can have a conversation. And at the same time, Prani Gloin, so Prani Gloin, he's quite the esteemed Māori component within Te Ao Māori. He is probably someone I look up to, so he's my Obi-Wan Kenobi. And um, he also had the same idea of wanting to do a podcast based on Māori themes because there, there isn't much 
of them and he knew that the biggest challenge was consistency then that's how it happened these two got along then they got Tariyo Tariyo moved on to bigger better things and then I just happened to fall on the doorstep one day and yeah that's how we got pineapple lumps Richard <laughs> the rest is history and you're doing it every week are you or is it every month Every week, what we try and do is, is try and record a few at a time because um, Prani's quite a busy man. He's got he's got more hats than heads, so yeah, he's worn thin. So we try and get a cluster of recordings in before he goes away and then comes back again. So yeah, that's yeah, that's how we do it. Since there, it's been a whole lot of fun and just really just chatting over uh, a lot of diverse uh, topics within Te Ao Māori that. We actually like talking about, which is probably the key point about it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, you've got a lovely rapport, the two of you. You obviously get on well, and, and I guess that's part of the battle, but you just make it all sound really natural and unrehearsed and unscripted. So Turi Turi Wanawara means blah, 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 blah. So when someone's talking and, you know, oh, you know, there's lots of context we could give. Someone's bloody chewing the fat or lying yeah. or there's a ah, turi turi warawara or <laughs> they're going on and on and on. You're like, oh, turi turi warawara. Do you have a clear idea of what you want to cover each week or do you just let the conversation take its course or how does it work? Well, I think that is the beauty of it. The beauty of it is a lot of times we come up with a plan, but however Prawne or myself are feeling on the day, we may not want to talk about the scheduled topic. So, he goes, nah, don't want to talk about that. Let's talk about this. Okay, then. And then we sort of look behind our forehead a bit and go, oh, yeah, we can fill an hour with something substantial where Morgan will have to pick apart and glue together and piece it all. And, and um, yeah, but I think that is the beauty of it. It's a, an organic type of an approach. And we're really happy based on the feedback that that's what comes out because anything scripted, I think, you know, you don't want to lie to your listener. And I think consequently what's happened is that the what we're, from the feedback, the listener is actually just in the conversation over a cup of tea. Kiwaha. Our kiwaha for today is... Turi turi warawara. Turi turi warawara, bang bang. bang. <laughs> <laughs> I really wanted to do that. <laughs> what I like to think is that we give digestible chunks, so it's nothing too long over, a, over an hour. I know myself, if I'm looking at a podcast for specific topic anything over 40 minutes i'm like mm, that's one of the mottos we reach he says himself when a person does fight corridor speaks upon the marae in the public forum you get to a, a certain point in your fight corridor and that's the pinnacle so it's time to wrap it up what are the other advantages do you think about podcasting if, if i'm thinking of my own experience of trying to learn a language it was at school in a classroom and there was a teacher up the front uh, pointing to things on a board and trying to learn a language and a culture by podcast is very different, isn't it? I must profess that this podcast will not... It'll, it'll give you a few insights into Reo Māori, but the learning aspect has to come from the, the person themselves. And if you're on that journey, this I, I believe this one gives you a really good comfort zone. All I can think of the word is comfort because um, we, we actually talk about a few things that could be a bit of a social faux pas if someone wants to bring it up within, you know, their circles or, you know, some of the questions that we, we try and answer are, are questions that people, you know, they ponder in their living room. So I think that the, the biggest thing for me is comfort and safety for the learner. You go to any hui Māori, it's better if you have a kai before the hui. Strategically, the kai will be before the hui. Aye. Depending what time the hui is, and sometimes there's a kai before and after, because... 
There's nothing worse than having someone on a hui that's hangry. And the kaupapa's a big one. Yeah, yeah. Ko te reo karearo to tēnei. Our emotional state at the time will guide us or dictate what we will say. Sometimes we can't hold those emotions. You know, sometimes you're trying to do the poker face, but it's written all over your face. Wow. You don't have to say it. Well. In a world where it's hard to find a context or an environment to speak to them, we try and create that. So if you have a buddy that's listening there as well, you can practice the kiwaha, the, the colloquial sayings that we, we, we implement every episode. What do you think? What did you... um? Have, have you listened to much? Or have yeah, you, have yeah. You... I mean, I've listened to a few episodes. The first few things that strike me is immediately, because you've got your headphones on and it's much more intimate and you feel like you're kind of in the corner of the room watching you guys, you know, joking with each other and having a laugh. And I, I suppose there's that feeling of fun and informality and, com- and a conversation going on, which I really liked. And I think the other thing I really picked up on was, that, and it sounds kind of stupid to say, but it's that feeling of... Tereo is being a very living and evolving language. It's actually a new expression that's come about, I would say, probably in the past 10, 15 years. Mm. And kare is ripple. Aye. You know, it's not kare like kia ora kare. Hey kare. Tēnā kare. Hey kare. <laughs> no, it's ripple. If you were to break it down in aroto, within. Within, aye. It could mean something you feel strongly about, but... Generally speaking, now it's used as a word for emotions within you. Aye. That's stirring within you. So, kuinate karearoto. So, it's emotions, it's feelings. So, what do you know about your listeners and where they are and where they're listening to you and how many you've got? Our latest stats say from last month, 21,000, 21.8,000. And that's pretty, because I don't, I don't look at stats. This is all pretty, this is just a fun side gig for me. So, it's really neat to see that. And, um, I want you to help me, Richard. What can I do? I want you to help. Uh, Guernsey. Oh, Guernsey. Guernsey. The Channel Channel Islands. Where's that? Oh, right. Between... Sure, you've put me on the spot there. Um, Okay, it's one of the Channel Islands. I'm thinking Jersey, Guernsey, and it'll be between England in the English Channel before you get to France. I wow. think. Guernsey, yeah. So we've got we've got two listeners from Guernsey. I'm just trying to look at the flags that I can't name without a name next to them. Yeah, but so Bulgaria. So yeah, quite a um, Bulgaria. Yeah. Two listeners in Bulgaria. Pure national state of Bolivia. There's one there. You can't be Otemaka. Yeah. Because this can come across as quite corny and cheesy. Well, you end up some people going, oh, turi turi wara wara, this fella. <laughs> yeah, goro, turi turi wara wara. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's not fair because I wanted to say that. Yeah, you set me up. I was, Thanks for that. Yeah, no, I was setting myself up. So you get you get one, <laughs> I get a point and you get an assist. Oh, turi turi wara wara. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I got one. Yeah, got one. <laughs> I want to touch on Once Upon a Timer where we, where we retell a, a story or a myth or a legend. And I find that to be one of the most fun-filled parts of the show for myself because I've taken on board um, having a go at writing a script and it's really fun. It's, a, it's pretty hard meeting deadlines, but, yeah, I thought those are really cool. Come close, brother. Koinei taku reo Please take my dying wish to our mother. I shall. Please let her and the village know that that, that I... Cut off you, little brother. That, that I'm the... Gr- Oh, Korero, my little brother, Korero. The greatest fisherman that ever lived! <laughs> uh, 
Bray, Bray, you should have hurt yourself. You've condemned us to the Rohingya. <laughs> and you really get into the parts too. I can tell you have got a lot of fun with it. Yeah, yeah, I think. And whoever's walking past the office, say it's like, oi, you, come here, read this line. <laughs> now read it funny. Now read it again. And then they don't know what's happening until they realise that their their voice is going on here. But yeah, it is, it is a, it's a whole lot of fun. I think that's the best part of it. Is Taringa the only podcast that you guys are doing at Te Wananga or Aotearoa, or, or are there other ones? I think um, Taringa has been the the segue for other podcasts to happen. I know at the in the works at the moment is one that is going to be a, a resource to help Te Reo Māori learners. Now, Te Reo Māori is our Foundations Te Reo Māori program. And so what they're putting together is a podcast that pretty much aligns more to what the learner is learning specifically within the within the program they're doing. So they get to take it home and listen to it as well. And um, at the moment, Taringa has been used as word as well. So a lot of our kaiako, a lot of our teachers that are teaching to the Māori are going, hey, is it right if we if we recommend episode such and such for our for our tawira, for our learners? And we say, yeah, very much so. We even get it. We even people from our local radio station say, "Hey, how much is it to play Taringa?" And we say, "So far, it's free. Just play it. Just play it. It's all about knowledge sharing." Thanks to Puahiri Snowden, and thanks also to Sandwave, aka Morgan Samuel, for helping us out in the studio too. Now, everybody, one, two, three. Coming soon on the Podcast Hour, a show that goes to 11 different cities and asks people one simple question. Where are you going? Including one from Hanoi in Vietnam, a city that sounds a bit like this. Where are you going? The Hanoi version coming soon on the podcast hour. Also, Paul Howard emailed pods at rnz.co.nz to recommend Dan Carlin's Hardcore History, also the music show Sound Opinions. Paul says he's enjoying the show but likes longer clips of things, so would prefer two or three podcasts to be featured each week. Thanks for the email, Paul, and I'd love to hear what you lot think about this too. I'm usually showcasing four shows every week. If you think that's a bit much and, like Paul, you prefer fewer shows and longer clips, or maybe you want more shows and shorter extracts, let me know what you reckon. Pods at rnz.co.nz is the email address, and we are at RNZ Podcast Hour on Twitter. A nocturne is a piece of music that's inspired by or which evokes the night. It's also the name of a podcast I've been enjoying recently that was recommended to me by Drew Ackerman, a.k.a. Dearest Scooter, of the unique podcast Sleep With Me, who I had on the show a few weeks back. Nocturne is made by the independent American audio producer Vanessa Lowe, who's intrigued by how people and places can change as day turns into night. As she says, do I truly know you if I only know the daytime you? So here you'll find stories of shift workers and insomniacs, of night adventurers who love having the streets all to themselves, of dreams and sleep anxieties, and of couples who haven't shared a bedroom for years. 
It's measured and quiet and contemplative. And here's a couple of clips from some stories I've been enjoying recently. Blackfish is all about a Cornish fisherman called Malcolm Saunders, who does some of his best work at night, fishing off the coast of the southwest of England. The, the crazy thing is when I started on this boat, when I had it first, I didn't work nights, but then I see it's the best way, so we started working nights. So I don't go very far off the coast, so I go 10 miles to the west or 10 miles to the east, but I'm always close to the shore. I'd have to shoot you if I told you where I went. But there are little places we know, like red mullet, like a certain bit of ground, and you, and you know where it is. I mean, even these days, even boats like mine, we got track plotters, like a GPS you use in your car. So at night we can go to rocks, which years ago you couldn't do because you needed landmarks to find them, but now we can do it in the dark. Unlike with most modern 9-to-5 work, a fisherman's hours are dictated by many factors outside their control. There's weather, tides, and, of course, seasons. With the night fishing, obviously the days change. We're in June. Are we June month now? But anyway, we're near the longest day of the year where we get an 18-hour day, but in the winter we only get a, an 8-hour day. So this time of year, you'd go out just before dark. So this time of year, you would actually work right through the dark until daylight. In the winter, you, I would go at, say, 3 or 4 o'clock in the afternoon, shoot the nets, go in somewhere, get some tea, then go back out as soon as it's dark and start hauling the nets again. Depending on how much fish you got, I could be back in by 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning. If you've got a lot of fish, obviously you wouldn't get back in maybe till dinner time the next day. So it can be quite tiring, yeah. But I love working the nights. The nights are brilliant. As a youngster, I wouldn't have, but now I'm older, I love it, because you're on your own, and you don't have to worry about people following you, you know, people who don't know where to... This is another of the problems with fishing. We got a lot of newcomers coming into the fishing industry who are not from traditional families. They're getting laid off from shore jobs, people like in their 50s, they're too young to retire, they get a £50,000 redundancy package and they think, oh, I'll go and buy a fishing boat. And then they come here and then they follow us, the professional fishermen, and they have GPSs so they can track us and they can plot us down. In the old days you couldn't do it, but nowadays they can do this and then they just go and buy the nets already made up instead of making them themselves they can buy it all made. And the next minute they're following you around and then they're catching the fish that you were chasing. And then, because they're catching fish and you're catching, there's more fish on the market, so the price goes down. So then we get low prices, then you've got to catch more fish to make the same money, but then you can't catch more fish because you've got a quota. <laughs> so, and it just goes round you like a dog chasing its own tail. But they won't go out at night, they're too scared to go out at night. You've got to be a professional to go out at night. So you don't get much harassment from them at night, and it's great, yeah. But there's nothing more beautiful, especially at night. You've got the lights on and you catch, I catch red mullet in the summer. 
and they look beautiful in the, in the light, they're shining because my nets are only in the water for an hour or so and therefore the fish are in prime condition, all the scales are on them and they come out and they're just glistening and red mullet as their name suggests, they're bright red and in the light with the water glistening they just look beautiful. Any fish, mackerel, they're all the same, but underneath the lights, it just intensifies their beauty. And that's just the start. Then you got the weather, you know, even bad weather can be nice, as long as it's not too bad. Well, it's just it's invigorating, you know, you're coming back, the boat's full of fish, you're hitting the seas, the spray's flying back, and you don't care, you're thinking, oh, I've got 500 quid worth of fish here for a night's work, that's all right, you know, you just put up with it and get in and go and have a hot shower and go to bed and everything's perfect. And then on a fine night, you look up and there's stars and cloudless sky, no moon out, and you see all the stars up there, and I just lie back on the stern of the boat looking up, my hat nearly falls off, and I'm trying to make out all the constellations, but... That's brilliant, you, know, you see shooting stars all the time. You get like 20 minutes, half an hour a night where you can just forget everything, but even then you still got to steer the boat, it doesn't steer itself. <laughs> you get too contemplative and you end up on the rocks. <laughs> even though Malcolm goes out to catch fish by himself, in those solitary nights, He's rarely really alone. Dolphins, whales, everything, seals, you name it, it's just, it's all out there. Nighttime, oh, I mean, everything about it. I mean, I could just sit here all day telling you about it. Like, the weather, I just, it's amazing, you know, lightning storms. I mean, the first time I saw dolphins at night, you know, I was in the bow of the boat. And I could hear the squeaking, you know, they squeak. I'm like, what's that squeaking? I look over the bow, and the dolphins were in the bow wave of the boat, in the dark, but then we get this stuff called phosphorescence. It's like a plankton-y stuff which glows green. And as they were going through the water, you could just see the outline of each dolphin completely defined in this electric blue, and, you, and then a, they, the fish would move and they would chase the fish. You know, I mean, the first time you see that, it's incredible. Blackfish from Nocturne. Meanwhile, if you've ever stayed somewhere without power or just turned off the lights at night so you can light a few candles and enjoy the way it makes the room look different, then you might appreciate Candle Hour. It's the story of writer and journalist Julia Scott, who was finding that technology use and 24-7 access to often negative news stories wasn't the best preparation for sleep. So she thought back to the power cuts and snowstorms in her childhood decades before and started a relaxing ritual before bed. There's no rules for candle hour. The only thing is, step one is you turn off your devices and turn off the lights or turn them down. Step two is you light a candle or more than one candle and then you do whatever you feel like. Read play music, meditate, write in your journal, sit and stare at the flame, make love to someone, um, make love to yourself. <laughs> Just, you know. It's so obvious and it's so accessible, but it's not something that I remember to do. Well, here it is. Yeah. It's, it's here to remind you. And 
it's always been there. It'll always be there. You know, and I'm not a perfect person in observing this ritual. You know, there's plenty of nights when I, I can't, don't, don't want to do candle hour, you know, and yeah. I'm, but it's, uh, I enjoy it when I do it and it, I do sleep better always, 100% of the time, I can say that. So let's give it a try. Let's do it. Let's turn off the lights. Yes. So, and so let me feel my way over to the matches and start lighting these candles. These matches are crap, so I'm gonna have to use a fresh one for the rest That's, of the candles. I like the smell when you light them too. Oh, I know that sulfur smell. Yeah. Oh, it's good. It's a rich smell. Okay, I'll light a couple more. Mmm, tobacco patchouli. What do you think? It's 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 subtle, but but it's good. But true to form, I like it. It's not false advertising. I don't think so. Okay, good. One, two, three, four, five. We've got six candles going. See how bright it is? It's pretty bright, but it's neat because like this piece of driftwood, and in the candlelight, and it's, it's got all these shadows, and it yeah, already had a bunch of gnarly little kind of crevices and stuff, and now there's a lot to see. Yeah, it's suddenly a much more interesting object. I mean, it, it makes you want to pick it up and look at it and turn it and see what the light will do. You know, and, and you can almost see things, like the light will make you see things. Like, I kind of see like the silhouette of like some kind of, of fossilized lizard. You know, you see that with the, yeah. the eye here and then like the tongue sticking out. I saw a dinosaur. A dinosaur, exactly. Yeah, it's a fossilized lizard. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Anyway, so that's sort of fun. Plays tricks with your eyes. It's reminding me of, I think a lot, like a year ago, I was in a cabin in the woods and a really dark place. And I opened my eyes at night in bed and saw nothing. And it was like like a warm bath for my brain. Like, I don't think I'd ever opened my eyes in complete blackness and felt like this kind of, oh my God, this like soothing thing. It's you know, soft... you know that feeling of awe mm. when you come out and you're in a totally rural place and you leave your tent or your car or your cabin or whatever, and like there's no urban light pollution and it's just you and the stars and you'd forgotten there were so many. Yeah, that feeling of oh my god, that awe I, that mm -hmm. makes me think of that when you're talking about mm -hmm. like this this feeling of 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 comfort and like a, a a warm blanket for your brain. Just being in a small moment that becomes really big in a, in a beautiful way. Yeah. So whatever that is. Whatever that is. Not trying to do anything. It, it can. It feels huge actually to just sit with candles and talk about the smallest thing, which is... Which is, you know, this the, eucalyptus seed pot. Yeah. I mean, there's there's nothing to do. There's no accomplishing to be done. There's, there's no achievement available. It's just candles and darkness and, and whatever you find your mind wants to do. Mm. 
You see how some of the candles are it's like, yeah, they're like different beings. They all have different personalities. Yeah. Some of them are very peaceful and still. You can barely discern them moving at all. And then others really almost like look like they're trying to get out of their little glass jars. Like, I'm trapped, save me. Do you see what I meant when you asked me what is what does it mean to have the candle breathe and in so doing remind mm -hmm. me that I need to breathe? Mm -hmm. Do you see how they're breathing? I do. I also like looking at how many different colors are inside a candle, um, like like the flame. You know, like look at this one. Mm -hmm. The tip of the wick is just the very, very tip is bright orange, and then it gets a little bit reddish, and then black, and then the outside of the base of the flame is is blue. Like, yeah, like there's like different blues in the different. It's like kind of an azure at mm -hmm. the very bottom, and then yeah. it becomes like a lighter blue, and then. What we're doing here is nothing. We're just being. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a gift we don't give ourselves very much. Yeah, it's protecting a part of yourself and saying this is this is a valuable thing that I need to attend to, right? And remember. Yeah, yeah. I think protecting, that's a good way of putting it. Cordoning off a part of yourself for yourself. This is the me I get to keep. This is the me I get to transfer into my sleep and into my dreams. Julius Scott's story in Candle Hour from Nocturne, and she was speaking to Vanessa Lowe, who makes the podcast. More details of how to listen and subscribe at rnz.co.nz forward slash podcast hour now. <laughs> The Japanese anime studio, Studio Ghibli, is 33 years old this year. And from Spirited Away to Kiki's Delivery Service, it's responsible for some of the most popular animated films ever made. Film geek Michael Leader has seen all 20-odd of them, but his colleague Jake Cunningham has hardly seen any. So each week they watch one, share their thoughts about it and some interesting facts about how it was made, and then rank them all from best to worst. The Ghibliotech is a relaxed but informative consideration of the studio's back catalogue, and it coincides with the screening of all the Ghibli films on the English digital TV network Film 4. Here's part of their discussion about many people's favourite, the 1988 film My Neighbour Totoro, with the two presenters joined by the film writer Beth Webb, who recently wrote a piece to mark the film's 30th anniversary. So we've got this uh, this lovely opening 30 minutes uh, where we are just exploring the forest and the house and the attic and the well, and that's really lovely. And because it's so nice and you're so wrapped up in the world, you don't really notice the fact that we've only really met the dad and the daughters, mm. uh, and then we meet the mother mm -hmm. of the family, and she's in hospital, and that's really the, the first kind of narrative point that it locks into. Mm -hmm. As part of the article that I wrote, I spoke to a really fascinating woman called Helen McCarthy who wrote a book about Hayao Miyazaki um, called Hayao Miyazaki, Master of Japanese Animation. She, she really knows her stuff. And something that we, we spoke about very briefly is 
the theme of death that runs through Totoro. And I think it's really interesting to acknowledge that it's very much a, a theme. But what what she she said to me, and I'll, I'll just quote her, is it allows death to assume a role in the movie without personalising or demonising death. And I just thought that was a, a super interesting point. Because well, yeah. Well, there's that there's that point about halfway about the half an hour in maybe. Yeah. So you've had the sort of jaunts around the house and the the garden and everything, and then you find out you know where the mother is. Mm. Mother's convalescing, and it's a way for the film to acknowledge death and parents' mortality. You know, and Totoro is this spirit that comes and fills that void. Mm. Um, and it's one of our. I mean, uh, I don't know if it's a, actually a theme throughout the movies, but absent parents, absent mothers. Yeah. We see that in Grave of the Fireflies as well. Well, and Spirited Away is her. Being separated from her parents. It's something that is there. It's a texture of the film to the point where people, you know, serious critics, adult critics, see it as a darker film than it probably is. What I think is really impressive is within that first 30 minutes, the world building and feeling for adventure is so rich that you almost don't notice it. So it becomes, it's quite a punch when you are taken to the hospital and you actually understand why they've ended up in this house and what the family dynamic is at this point. And so then when you're introduced to Totoro and this just unending joy is brought into the world, it's so lovely. Mm -hmm. That sequence where it's May on the day where her sister's at school and it's her dad like beavering away on whatever scholarly work he's working on and she sees one of the little... The smaller Totoro who's yeah. darting off through the through the uh, the undergrowth or whatever mm. it is, and she follows him. It's such a great sequence, yeah. isn't it? One of those we we talk about these sequences that are just perfect on their own, and this is one of many in this film. And when she finally, as you said, Beth, just clambers up on top of this, I mean, what what is Totoro? Is the question we want to well, ask, this right? Is... What is this guy? Well, <laughs> she says she just says you're Totoro as if she she knows mm-hmm. already. Um, that's that's partly what makes this film so fantastic is there's no definitive answer we could debate this for the rest of the podcast on both a physical level like he's had comparisons to seals owls trolls but he's I, furry as well but he's yeah. furry. and then when i watched it i watched it this week and saw kind of like dog-like mannerisms yeah. for the first time and sort of the the kind of the way that they sort of glance sideways and the, the sort of loyalty, but then also on like a metaphysical level, <laughs> it's been compared to something called kami, which is like a spirit tied to nature. So you know, is it tied to the camphor tree? Is it a he? Is it a she? I is know, it a god? Yeah. <laughs> is it is it real or not? I know that Miyazaki encourages you to either you know can believe it's a figment of their imagination or it's real and that's up to you although he says that he believes that Totoro is real I 100% believe he's real, real. Yeah. it's like yeah, it's like is, in Peter Pan like would you clap to bring Tinkerbell back kind of thing like do you believe Totoro mm. is real do you believe in him I, I love that I love how accessible it is how you can interpret it and project onto it whatever you want mm-hmm. and I think therein lies the magic it's it's your experience that you're taking away from that it's your projection and that's the projection that May's making. Um, you see in the credits at the end, well, the, the, the line is, you're a Totoro, when she talks to her sister and says, I've met Totoro, which has been Totoro, like in your storybook. Mm-hmm. Over the closing credits, you have these depictions of the family in different moments, and there's one where it's the daughters reading a storybook. And it seems to be the three billy goats gruff, that sort of folk tale, fairy tale. But on the back cover, there's a face that looks just like a Totoro. Right. And so there's a suggestion that it's from her storybook and that's the, that's the name she ascribes to Totoro. I, 
I read it as at, like Atotoro in that there. So you have so these three. Yeah, you have these three little creatures, and their species is Totoro, and they are a Totoro, and you have the king one, and the blue one, and the white one. I don't know about you, but it just makes me want to go and watch some of those films again. The Ghibliotex episode about My Neighbour Totoro, featuring Michael Leader, Jake Cunningham and Beth Webb. And that's about it from me and the podcast app. And now, just a reminder, you've been listening to What Are The Odds from the BBC, Taringa from Te Wananga o Aotearoa, Nocturne and the Ghibliotech. And any listening recommendations, do send them in to me at pods at radionz.co.nz or on Twitter, we are at RNZ Podcast Hour. I'll feature them all on future shows if I can. From me, Richard Scott, enjoy the rest of your weekend. I'll be back next week. <laughs>